Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Voices, a podcast by Equanimity Foundation, where we share global perspectives on international development, peace and security, and social innovation. I'm your host, Alex Polk, and today I am really excited to be joined by Marius Gincha, a PhD researcher at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and one of the teaching assistant and research assistants at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies at Bologna. So Marius, welcome to our show. Hello, Alex. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's so nice to speak with you. Um, you know, a little plug, uh, you were the teacher assistant for my theories of international relations class. So it is a joy to be speaking with a uh, familiar face once again, although we are not face to face. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> of course. So um, I'm excited to be talking a lot about your research and sort of flipping the script. And I was wondering if we could just sort of kick things off. Um, your research is going to be called The Struggles of Identity. And I want to know what drew you to this subject in particular. Could you talk a little bit about what you've been researching and what are those main points of interest? Oh, thank you. Um, yes, my project is called The Struggles of Identity and it is about more or less identity politics. And what draws me to, to, this, to this topic is the, the fact that over the last few years I've moved from country to country from Europe to the US and back, moved around Europe. And one of the familiar things I will notice in almost every society I will, I will move in was that every one of them will have some sorts of identity politics. People who will not disagree over what it means to be a American or a British or a Frenchman or woman, an Italian uh, or a Hungarian. Mm -hmm. People disagreeing over what it means to be a member of the social group they are belonging to. And this made me question, why does this happen? And how do these people uh, contest each other's understanding of their shared identity? And what effects does that have on uh, particular issues like foreign policy, development, mm -hmm. security and so on? Could you describe for us what is identity politics? Well, there are multiple understandings of identity politics, both in, uh, in the media and in academia. Uh, when it comes to the media, identity politics seems to be anything which is related to race or ethnicity or identity, uh, but that makes it a bit too vague and uh, useless for analytical purposes. Uh, when it comes to scholars in academia, scholars either talk about identity politics as related to the dynamic between personal, individual, and the, and the social group they belong to, like a gay man and uh, his relation to, to the social group he belongs to, either the community, the society, the wider world, and so on. But there is also another distinctive understanding of identity politics uh, related to, to conflicts uh, over resources and uh, uh, access to economic opportunities. This is particularly used when it comes to civil conflict and ethnic conflict in the developing world. But again, for that we tend to have better concepts like ethnic conflict or civil conflict. So again, it seems to tend to be a bit too general. So I provide a, a different understanding of identity politics uh, as a, an intra-group conflict over the meaning of collective identity. 
So it is between members who identify as being part of the same social mm-hmm. group, but who disagree over what it means to be a member of that social group. So identity politics, it's its kind of a buzzword that we see out there, and it, it can ruffle some feathers, I think, from time to time. So in, in simple terms, is identity politics a positive or a negative phenomenon? Well, from my point of view, we should not look at identity politics from a normative perspective. Mm-hmm. Identity politics, neither good or bad, is what you make of it. Okay. Uh, identity politics can become bad when it can uh, uh, it is when it is instrumentalized mm-hmm. to divide and to marginalize people, but it can also be used to include and to uh, expand what it means to be a member of a social group. It is, as constructivists will say in international relations, what you make of it. Mm-hmm. It is our decision how we we shape identity politics and our decide this decision to align ourselves with one side or the other and how we uh, we behave will decide in the end if identity politics is bad or not uh, according to our own values but in itself identity politics is neither good or bad it's what we make of it yeah, I think that identity is so interesting because, you know, from day to day, the way that we view the world is only through the lens that we have. And that is shaped by various factors. You know, you have the things that are more demographic, like race and gender, um, religion even. But then also day to day experiences are such an important thing. Um, so how have you gone about conducting this research to explore this topic further, especially with regard to identity politics um, and their impact on those issues you were listing, like foreign policy or development? Well, I, I employ a, a mixed research design. And this this means that I'm, on the one side, doing a, an analysis of discourse, of narratives, of political speeches, of how people interact in a discursive manner in society. Uh, I apply what in social sciences is called discourse network analysis, which means I analyze content, but also networks. Basically, I'm looking for how people describe what they mean by being a member of a social group. For example, in the United States, what does it mean to be American? People have different understandings of what Americanness means. And I'm trying to uh, inductively retrieve what people understand by these social categories uh, and at the same time, I want to uh, build some networks to, to see how pe- people are clustered together. And I use for this network analysis, basically seeing how people who share similar understandings of identity cluster together in order to promote further their own conception of collective identity. And at the same time, uh, I also have a more uh, practical component of my uh, research design, and that involves fieldwork. I go and do interviews. I uh, visit different communities and try to to engage with, with the local communities. I try to do what some, some will call ethnography. And this involves not only talking with people, but just observing and seeing how the community and how uh, people in cities or villages actually relate to each other and people who have different understandings of what it means to be part of a social group uh, relate and sometimes struggle 
to to achieve a common shared understanding of what it means to be a member of a nation, for example, or of an ethnicity and mm-hmm. so on. And actually, when you're talking about the discourse network analysis, and you're saying that you explore different networks and um, different content, could you elaborate on like what kind of content you've seen that, that you can share? And do these different networks also in and of themselves impact identity? Like my mind went to um, examining content that you might see on social media. But of course, I feel like you can show a lot of different identity traits through social media that might not be as uh, apparent on the surface from those face-to-face interviews you're discussing. So could you elaborate a little bit more on some of that content that you have discovered? Oh, sure. While I'm not doing online research, there are people who are looking at Twitter or Facebook and are drawing Mm -hmm. uh, content from those platforms in order to see how people relate and conceive uh, their own membership to various groups online. I'm not necessarily interested in the online debates. I'm more interested in uh, more higher-up debates Mm -hmm. among elites in communities and leaders, political leaders. And for example, if you look at uh, debates in the US Congress or in the American society, uh, you have people who uh, talk a lot about what it means to be American, describing their own uh, identity. And basically, I use uh, uh, discourses, political discourses. I'm looking at newspapers. Mm-hmm. I'm looking in magazines, I'm looking at uh, various other personal blogs of people in order to retrieve various understandings of collective identity. And I wanted I, I should make clear from the beginning that when I'm talking about identity, I'm not saying that we have a single identity. I'm saying that there are a plurality of identities in, in society, and these identities have some characteristics which are shared across individuals Mm -hmm. and networks in society, but some characteristics which are different and groups disagree. And for example, in in the United States society, we we can see that we have, and a lot of uh, uh, journalists and political scientists distinguish between uh, liberal interpretations of uh, collective identity Mm -hmm. and uh, more conservative interpretations of collective identity. I'm trying to, to grasp what do those things mean? What does it mean to have a more conservative understandings of collective America, of what it means to be American, for example? Yeah, just to, to interject there, could for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar, um, could you give like a brief overview of what a liberal versus a conservative conceptualization of collective identity what that means? Like, what's the, oh, sure. what's the difference? Uh, let's take the discourses from the two party conventions from 2016, for example, where uh, expressions of what it means American are quite obvious. You have the Democratic Convention and you have the Republican Convention. Mm -hmm. Uh, More liberal uh, understanding of what it means uh, to be be American translates in a more cosmopolitan and uh, pluralistic, ethnically diverse understanding of American. American Mm -hmm. doesn't mean only to be white, it means to be diverse. It means to be it means secular in, in many of these accounts. It means to be at the same time educated and uh, tolerant, accepting diversity and uh, of emphasizing commonalities between diverse people than just uh, excluding mm-hmm. categories of people which do not 
aligned to uh, some predefined conception of ethnicity or race and so on. While more conservative conceptions of collective identity tend to, to, to be a bit more exclusionary. They tend to describe uh, Americanness, for example, in terms of Christianity, particularly more Protestant uh, forms of Christianity, whiteness, mm-hmm. and we put a lot of value on uh, having an, um, uh, a historical uh, membership, like, which is conservatives tend to, to, to value a lot the fact that uh, their, their fathers and grandfathers and grand-grandfathers have been in the United States and have formed the country that today we call the United States. Almost like a shared narrative type of type of storyline. Exactly. Yeah. Well, of that one the group. conservative conceptions of collective identity and particularly of national identity in the United States is based on the idea that we are here for over 200, 300 years. We are a nation which is white, religious, Christian, which uh, is supportive of um, uh, traditional values of the army, of um, generally uh, supportive of uh, small communities and so on. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. And actually, that whole discourse was a perfect segue into my next question. So rocking and rolling um, with how identity politics typically take shape with regard to domestic and foreign policy development. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you've discovered in that regard? Sure. Uh, identity politics is a, is a political and social phenomena which takes place uh, more or less when certain economic or social conditions uh, uh, facilitate its emergence. Identity politics mm-hmm. is not something ne- necessarily new, even if some scholars and even uh, pundits in the media will like us to believe so. But Amer- identity politics is as o- old as, uh, as humanity itself. And um, it emerges uh, from two sources, basically. You have a demand side and a supply side. Sometimes when economic conditions create uncertainty and precarity and uh, uh, dissatisfaction in certain social groups uh, due to uh, heightened immigration or uh, lower economic opportunities, uh, they they try to, uh, they demand to understand what's happening. They demand to to get a grasp on what's happening in, 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 our, in their societies. And uh, elites, either politicians, either uh, uh, social uh, leaders, uh, create new understandings of, uh, or resurrect new understandings of collective identity. That will mm-hmm. be the, the demand side. The supply side will be backwards, in which elites, due to more self-interested objectives of gaining votes and power, uh, actually seek to galvanize and polarize society for their own selfish interests, political interests of gaining power, and start uh, a debates over the nature and content of what defines the nation or, or a social group. So uh, there are at least two ways in which identity uh, politics uh, usually emerges. And this is important because identity politics usually doesn't take place directly. People don't just uh, face each other and say, to be American means that or that or that. (laughs) Identity politics usually takes shape indirectly. It takes place indirectly around uh, substantive issues, if I can say so, like on policy Mm -hmm. issues, which are always present in our societies. And through these 
issues, policy issues, uh, social problems, identity identities are, are articulated and uh, political elites seek to basically shape policy according to the values and to the ident- with the identities um, which are prescribed by the content we were talking earlier. And when it comes to foreign policy, well, foreign policy is just another uh, policy arena. And the same, uh, the same processes take place here in which foreign policy uh, is framed and developed and reshaped according to how one sees the nation and the country. And uh, that has a substantive issue, uh, uh, consequences um, over how uh, foreign policy and uh, national security policy evolves over time. We have seen this uh, over the four to eight years more than never before, I would say. I think the discussion of like the um, supply and demand aspect of it are are very interesting. It makes me, I know that's very simplistic, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dr. Seuss book about the sneeches and that they have uh, star belly sneeches and the emphasis on the ways that elites and maybe even third party external actors can um, utilize identity politics to their own benefit reminds me of that story just as a quick overview and i know this is a bit of a rant but uh the sneeches have uh you have star belly sneeches and non-star belly sneeches and um there's this sense of elitism between the star bellies and those without stars and then a third party vendor comes in and he starts capitalizing on the fact that you can generate fake stars to make everyone feel inclusive. And this causes a whole rift. And I think that's very interesting. It's oh, just something I was thinking about. That would be a supply side part of identity yeah. politics in which basically one common trait, which was maybe before it was not emphasized, now becomes emphasized because it is uh, uh, politically useful to some political leader. Mm-hmm. And so on. Absolutely. And I think that's especially prevalent um, when you're studying things like interstate or intrastate conflict, which leads me to this following question. Um, Are there any distinctions that you could draw regarding identity politics influence in developing regions versus in more developed states, especially in terms of things that we see with conflict, whether it's interstate or intrastate? Um, What are those distinctions that you're able to connect between different regions of the world that might be experienced development at different rates. Identity politics is is a phenomenon which happens everywhere. It happens in mm-hmm. India under the current government, it happens in in Japan, it happens in uh, in the Middle East, it happens in North America as we can uh, we very well know, it happens mm-hmm. in uh, in Europe, in France, in uh, Hungary, in Poland, uh, even in Russia at some point. So it is a global phenomenon. What, what differs in the way it takes shape in the developing versus developed world uh, is mostly related to the strength of political institutions. The developed world tends to have stronger and more established political institutions, which are able to regulate better these types of mm-hmm. identity struggles. There are, there are rules in place which cannot be override uh, that that easily by by uh, identity coalitions by political elites who deploy identity narratives, and therefore that provides a degree of structure to how um, identity politics takes place 
and its effects on the wider society. While in the developing world, the political institutions, the domestic structures are not so well embedded, oftentimes, and they tend to, to, to break quite easily. So when identity politics emerges in some developing country with weak political institutions, that can very often result in a collapse of the political um, uh, structure of political institutions. And that can either result in the emergence of rebellion or even uh, different types of revolutions or uh, civil war or genocide, as we have seen multiple times in Africa, Mm -hmm. for example. So one defining characteristic uh, that differentiates southern parts of the globe, the developed and the developing world, is the, the strength of political institutions which can regulate and constrain identity politics and its effects on the wider society. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a similar vein, do we ever see incidences in which maybe domestic identity struggles in one part of the world, whether it's the, the developed or another part of the developing world, do we see cases where these domestic identity struggles are exported to other countries or to like the developing world, especially uh, with it maybe not having as strong of the political institutions. And if that is the case, what are some implications of that? Yes, that tends to happen in particular when it when identity politics is present in the developed world, uh, mm-hmm. because developed countries, Western countries in general, tend to have a larger influence on world affairs than uh, uh, developing countries, for obvious reasons. They have more resources, mm-hmm. they have more power, they, ha- they tend to have uh, uh, a bigger influence at the global level. And take, for example, uh, um, identity politics in, in the United States. Uh, one component of identity politics in the United States is over gay rights. What does it mean to be American? Does it mean to be American to be straight or it also includes gay people? Mm-hmm. Um, and there is usually this disagreement between conservatives and more liberal uh, people in the United States. Uh, some argue that to be truly an American means to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who is uh, uh, heterosexual. And uh, other groups which argue that no, it doesn't matter what your sexuality is when it comes to your uh, membership in the American nation, and so on. And you see that as identity politics in the United States evolves, some groups which are tending to lose the fight at home are exporting this struggle abroad in order to still uh, maintain their relevance. And you see, for example, uh, conservative organizations from some southern states in the United States who go to Africa uh, and uh, support uh, repressive uh, uh, policies against uh, LGBT people in which uh, uh, same-sex intercourse is uh, punished with death, with a death penalty or uh, with other very harsh uh, sanctions. You see the same happening in Eastern Europe where the same organizations are going to countries like Romania, my, my home country, or to Croatia, or Slovenia, or Hungary, mm-hmm. and are promoting referendums 
to define marriage as only between a woman and a man. That's a, a way of exporting identity politics to other parts of the world who have not experienced these debates or do not have historical experience with the type of dynamics which are quite familiar in the American context. But there is also another way of uh, exporting identity politics mm -hmm. through governmental institutions. Think about liberals gaining power in the United States, uh, holding the White House and the Congress, and uh, redefining foreign policy objectives, redefining what are the targets for uh, development funds, what are the objectives of different uh, foreign policy agencies that the federal government has, and how these shape both domestic objectives, but also how other states relate with the United States, with each other, and uh, how, for example, transnational uh, networks and organizations who rely on funding from the United States change their mission and their objectives in order to continue to, to have access to American resources. That's really interesting. I It's always been an area that I've also wanted to explore a little bit more, like how can you export certain identity struggles that might on the surface appear um, integral only to one country or one region, but then you see these trends sort of existing elsewhere as well. And it's like, what is the link? Are there any sort of like causalities that you can uh, point to, such as the exporting? So thank you. That was such a wonderfully comprehensive answer and um, really concisely stated. In a more general sense, how do national identities and identity politics play at the international level? Whether it's, do we see trends of identity politics existing or even becoming invented uh, in international institutions like the UN or regional institutions like the EU with NGOs, things like that. Do we see identity politics and national identity transforming or influencing identity on an international scale? There are two main points here. The first one is about national identity and how national identities shape uh, uh, state behavior at the international level. And in order for mm -hmm. states to know what they want, to know what their interests are, they first need to know who they are, what defines them, mm -hmm. what the, the, the values they have. And when, for example, the outcome of identity politics at the national level in the United States or Britain or France or Russia or China or Brazil um, produces a dominant hegemonic conception of what it means to be American, British, French, German, Russian, Brazilian, then that defines certain objectives and preferences for countries at the international level. And that affects how the international system evolves over time. If, for example, more states uh, acquire national identities which have a very strong democratic and liberal component, then the entire international level evolves towards a more democratic and inclusive and liberal uh, direction. But if from the national level, national identities tend to be shaped in more authoritarian or illiberal forms, then later on we will see effects at the international level. 
But we also have debates about identity, regional identity among countries. Look, for example, at the European Union, Mm -hmm. in which countries such as Poland or Hungary are basically disputing with the Western members of the European Union what Europe is. You have, for example, the episodes about the refugee crisis in 2015, the crisis over the euro, the currency of the European Union. And those were not only uh, policy issues, but the debates around them were also about what is Europe, for what does Europe stand. And uh, leaders like Viktor Orban in Hungary or Kaczynski in Poland have argued that uh, Europe is for Europeans, that Europe should not be an inclusive uh, a continent, that what defines us is our uh, Christian uh, religion, common religion, our traditions, our uh, languages and our uh, common history. While Western countries have tended to be more inclusive, with Germany, for example, taking in over one million refugees in 2015. And these identity politics are not always uh, limited to the domestic level, can take place also at regional level, when some sorts of regional identity exists among countries, like in Europe or Latin America or Southeast Asia. I see. Yeah, I think especially the discussion of the regional uh, regional institutions and identity formation there. Um, I remember reading your piece uh, about, um, I think it was We the People, Not the States, where you're analyzing the European Union. And I really liked your one quote where you said, the problem is that not everyone is Germany and Germany does not want everyone else to become Germany uh, for, for various reasons. And I think that that really captures a little bit why identity politics, whether it's just within a domestic sense or a regional sense, and then, you know, extending it even more broadly to an international level, um, they play such an interesting role for the political and social developments within all the countries and how they interact and interplay with one another. Indeed. Indeed. And I really enjoyed that paper, by the way. It was very good. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, when it comes to the euro crisis, uh, uh, Germany will like um, that others will behave more like it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, being more like Germany means being less like someone else. Mm-hmm. And there is a continuous struggle between people and countries and economies which have different values, which have uh, developed differently and which now live more or less together, need to find solutions to together. And that creates definitely uh, uh, issues about collective uh, uh, identity and belonging to the same group. So, uh, Marius, as as we're starting to wrap up, I was wondering, what is one takeaway or one idea that you would want our audience to to leave the conversation with? Well, one main point uh, I would want uh, to say is that we should not take our identities for granted. Mm -hmm. We we tend to take our identities for granted, but we should be more reflexive and reflective about our our identities. Mm -hmm. From where do they come? What do they give us? Why do we have them? And is it worth it to fight over identity? I like that sentiment. That's really great. 
Um, and if if our audience wants to learn more, where should they go? I know you have your research that will be uh, coming out uh, at the at the culmination of your PhD research program. But in the meantime, what where should people be looking if they want to learn more about identity politics in general, and especially how it um, relates to foreign policy and domestic policy developments? Well, I definitely recommend a project called Make Identity Count, Mm -hmm. which is a transnational project led also by uh, one professor from the political science department at Johns Hopkins University, Bentley Allen. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's at makeidentitycount.com, I think. It's a super interesting uh, uh, project. Also, a book at Oxford University Press with the same name. Uh, Also from Johns Hopkins, there is... um, uh, Lisa Hintz, mm-hmm. who has published in 2018 a book, Identity Politics Inside Out, uh, studying Turkey and Turkish identity politics in foreign policy and how basically domestic identity politics spills over into Turkish foreign policy and shapes how Turkish uh, uh, international behavior uh, evolves over time. That's a very that would be a very interesting case study, I think, to to explore further. So so thank you. We'll we'll definitely um, include some of those links in the caption for the podcast itself. But yeah, Marius, thank you so so much for sharing your research and your findings and your expertise with us. It's been an absolute joy to to speak with you again and also to learn more about identity politics and um and the ways that it can influence state relations and just domestic relations. So thank you so much. Thank you also for having me. Of course. So thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Definitely do not forget to subscribe to Global Voices on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and to follow Equanimity Foundation on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you all so much for joining our conversation, and I hope to speak with you all soon. Thanks, Marius, and thank you all.